3,000-year trip in about an hour. So hold on to your seats because we've got a lot of ground to cover. There are some things very different about what happened in the upper room as we read the gospel accounts. Uh, we don't see certain things that are part of a normal Passover Seder. I like to point out why they didn't happen. Uh, we don't see a lot of gals in the upper room. We do know there were women who followed Jesus. Normally, this is the most family-centered of all the Jewish holidays. It does not occur in a synagogue. It occurs in the Jewish home. And so it's very home-centered. So we would expect that a Jew in Jesus' day would have spent his time with his family on the Seder night. And uh, he did have half-brothers. And uh, that's not what happens. Jesus is spending that time with those disciples, not with uh, physical half-brothers, not with his mom. Um, that's a distinct difference than what would normally occur. Why? Because he wants to spend and invest those last hours with those men who are going to be taking his message into the world. So what normally happens is that the woman lights candles. This is my wife, Marlene, and it's a pleasure to have her traveling with me. That doesn't happen all the time. And so I wanted her to fulfill the role of the woman's part in the Seder since she's with me and get you a chance to meet her briefly. She can't wait to get off the stage because that's just not Marlene. Um, but I wanted you to understand that that night was different even than the normal sort of thing that happened with Jewish folks. And there's some things in the background going on that Jesus is terribly aware of that cause him to do things differently. And you're going to see more of that as the evening progresses. Um, it is normal. I'm, I'm looking out over the congregation. I love seeing young people and kids. Uh, folks, look at your kids. That's called the future church. Just so you get an idea there. Jewish people as a people have had to preserve a body of truth, and they understand something. They understand that if their kids don't get it, um, it's gone. Our faith is only one generation away from extinction. And so it is normative to bless the children. Now, how do Jewish people do that? Well, they say to the boys, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. The reason is those two sons of Jacob got a full share of the inheritance. So as you're reading your Bible, you'll see listings of the tribes in certain places, and you'll see a tribe's missing, but when you count them, there's still 12. Because really there are 11 and two half-tribes. And both of Joseph's sons get an inheritance, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so that's why boys are blessed that way. The idea is that they might be fruitful. They might be effective as far as God is concerned. Now, what about the young ladies? Well, we don't skip the young ladies. Um, the blessing there has to do with the matriarchs of Israel, the mothers of Israel. Uh, may the Lord make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, because they are the mothers of Israel. And so that's why that blessing is given. You'll notice there are more mothers of Israel than there are fathers of Israel. A little problem there ended up occurring, and that's why that ends up happening. I'm going to pull this out because I, I play a little dirty trick on pastors. I have a complete Hebrew and uh, Greek Bible on here. And what they don't know is when they're preaching, I have my Greek and Hebrew Bible open. And I'm following along and uh, just having a lot of fun with that. I, that'll take about a split second. Um, 
while you're doing that, I don't need that. Let's just have that open. There we go. Um, the assembly gets blessed too. Anyone recognize this? Anyone old enough to know what Star Trek is? All right, good. I love that. I love telling this story. Um, the Vulcans did not invent this. This goes back to the Jews. Okay. Leonard Nimoy came from an Orthodox family. Um, yeah. Yep. Better? Okay. We've gotten rid of that. Thank you. Um, this is from Leonard Nimoy's Jewish background, Eastern European Jewish background. We'll talk a little bit more about that. What you need to understand is it makes the Hebrew letter shin. Remember what, Abraham, uh, what God says to Abraham, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. Well, Jewish people recognized that that was a very early way that God introduced himself to the father of the people, and so this is the shin. Now, what about the blessing? The blessing was basically a blessing that God gave Aaron to pronounce over the sons, the children of Israel. I want you to hear a little bit of Hebrew. You can walk out here and say you're bilingual after today. But I want you to hear it. You'll hear it in English and Hebrew. Yivarechacha Adonoi meyishmarecha Yair Adonoi panav elecha Yevichunecha Yatsam Adonoi panav elecha Veyitsem lecha shalom. That's what Numbers uh, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26 sounds like in the Hebrew. Now let me give it to you in the English. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that would be done while the hands were in the shin position. Uh, I do want to just take a split second. Peace in Hebrew does not mean the cessation of war. That's included. Shalom has the idea of wholeness. I was listening to music. Jesus makes us whole. He makes us what we're supposed to be. That's true peace, not just external peace, but internal peace. The whole purpose of the Passover is to retell the story of the Exodus. And for us today, also to tell the story of the greater Exodus, because really, this is one giant love story. This is one book given by one God, and so we're going to piece things together. Now, how do you teach abstract truth to a desert people wandering around? You do it with concretes. We homeschooled. We used Cuisinart rods to teach math. We used M&Ms to teach math. The kids like that, okay? We used concretes to give them mental pictures of facts and truth. That's the way you do that. Jesus did that. Look at the birds of the air. And I think there were birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. If God provides for them, and Jesus is using concretes to reinforce spiritual uh, abstract things. So this has players on it, like we're telling a story. Now, the first players I need to introduce you to are the cups. Normally in a Seder, this cup is refilled. We want you to get the visual of the cup countdown. We want you to know which of the four cups is the cup of the bread and cup and why Jesus chose that cup over any other cup because he's very deliberate. So you're going to see these cups disappear and you're going to be able to do the countdown. Normally it'd be refilled and you just have to know that the, the first cup refilled is not the first cup anymore. It's the second cup. But you're going to get a more of a visual doing it this way. Each of these cups is connected to a promise in Exodus. 
Exodus chapter 6. So I'm going to turn there real quick here and give you these four promises that are all so important. In Exodus 6, 6, so it's easy to remember. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. There's the first I will from under the bondage of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you to me as a people, and I will be your God. So you see there are four clear I will promises that God gives to Israel. Each of these cups is connected to a promise and has a specific name. Now we're going to do things in the Hebrew order just to kind of mess you up. I have to tell people it's real easy. English, French, all your European languages read the same way as English. Mid-Eastern languages read this way, and Oriental languages were all originally written up and down. So you kind of know where a language came from by the way it's written. I'll have a few folks from New Tribes and, and Wycliffe talk to me later if I'm off. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. Notice I'm taking from the Hebrew end of things. What was the promise? I will bring you out. Why is that significant? Why is it called the cup of sanctification? You need to understand the idea behind the words that we use for holiness. The Hebrew word kadosh has the idea of being separate. The Greek word hagias has the same idea. And so the idea of holiness is separation. And so when God was going to take the children of Israel out of Egypt and bring them out, he wasn't bringing them out so they could just do their own thing. He was separating them for a specific purpose that he had in mind for them. And that's the very idea of holiness. When you read the Gospels, now it isn't this cup. It says Jesus blessed the cup, but it never says what he said, does it? Well, today you're going to hear what he said. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. That's what grapes are. I'm not going to get this anywhere near the microphone because we just got no static. and I'm not going to short it out. So I'm just going to put this cup aside. I would normally drink this cup. How many cups do we have left? Good. Calvary chapels and loud participation. I'm so excited. So we have three left. Jesus did not use this cup for the bread and cup. So the cup countdown has already begun. When this cup's refilled again, it is not the first cup. It then becomes the second cup. Now let me introduce you to the Seder plate. Now originally, Jewish people did not have neat published blue inked things like this. This is something I've developed. But the Haggadah goes back because Jewish people were dispersed and they needed a way to remember this type of meal for Passover, it's called a Seder meal because the word Seder in Hebrew means order. This is an ordered meal with a specific purpose. It's not just dinner. So it's a Seder meal. It's an ordered meal. And so it has some special items on it. It has some items we don't eat. Okay? This is the shank bone of a lamb. You can see where the kneecap comes in. It's a little worn. We're going to have to replace it. Not the lamb, the shank bone. And so we'll be working on that. It's seen a lot of travel. It's never eaten. It recalls the Paschal Lamb sacrifice. Apologetics 101, which is what I'm doing my doctorate in. No blood, no forgiveness. 
bloodless systems are systems that cannot provide atonement. Judaism now is not the Judaism of the Bible. It's Torah Talmud Judaism. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and Judaism was revamped as rabbinical Judaism. It has a lot of truth. It has a lot of beauty, but like a car with no engine, it cannot get you there. This is Beitzah, the hard-boiled egg. During Jewish holidays, God specified that they not only should give their regular offerings, but there were special offerings that were given. There are two sacrificial things that point back to the sacrificial system on the Seder plate. There are two offerings given during holidays. Beitzah represents the additional offering that was required during a holiday period. However, Beitzah does not appear on the Seder plate, as best we can figure out, until after the Babylonian captivity. What's interesting about eggs is the Babylonians saw them as symbols of resurrection. I think the Babylonians saw the chicken they killed was coming back again. And so it became a symbol of resurrection. The Jewish people put it on the Seder plate. It represented the second sacrifice. But the thing was they could sacrifice again after the Babylonian captivity. So it had been as though the nation was reborn. The cool thing is it appears right around Easter, right on lawns. So I like to call this the Babylonian connection. There are two other elements that are later players in the story. They're not going to come into the story right now. The one that is eaten, these three are eaten, that comes into the story immediately is this. This is the green leafy vegetable. Notice I didn't say herb. Herb is one of the two later things eaten. Why do I love to use parsley? Uh, Jewish people were scattered. There are Eastern European Jews that went north and into East Europe. They're called Ashkenazi Jews. There are Jews that stayed in North America and Spain. They're called Sephardic Jews. There's some differences in custom because there were differences in materials. There are things you cannot find in Siberia. And so there were some changes. And then other things caused some alterations. I like to use parsley. Eastern European Jews do, but there's a reason. It looks like hyssop. If you look at hyssop and you look at parsley, they look remarkably similar. You guys ever pray the Psalms back to God? Great cure for insomnia. Wonderful thing to do because the Psalms are in first person. David actually talks in first person. Most Jewish things are not in first person. They're in corporate language because Jews think more corporately. David says, wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. It's not a deodorant product. It was used in the temple and David's talking about if God's atonement is applied to me, I will be clean. Isn't that true? Right? Now I'm going to spoil the parsley. Salt water represents tears. Slavery is a sad, sad thing. Remember the sadness by the taste of tears, which tastes like salt water. So you dip the parsley in the salt water. I'm going to take a little bite just for effect. The saltier the water, the better it is. Now for a derivation from a normal Seder. Jesus normally would have gotten up to wash his hands. That would be normal. And what was expected. <coughs> 
He doesn't do that. You need to understand that when you're going to handle an important player in the story, a sacred thing, you don't do so with dirty hands. You don't defile something that's sacred. So you're reading through your Bible and you get to Leviticus and it's about 11 o'clock at night because you haven't done your devotion, right? And you get all these rules about the purity laws, right? About the time you start reading, your eyelids get heavy and you never quite finish Leviticus and you wonder why are these things here? You need to understand all those laws in the Torah, that's what Jewish people call it, the instruction, that's what Torah means. They don't call it the law because there's a lot in there. Um, were centered around teaching Israel about moral purity through using the illustration of physical purity. So physical purity was a way to teach them about moral purity. One was a picture of the other. And so you would normally wash your hands. Now Jesus is going to scandalize his disciples right here. He's going to do something unheard of in tradition. If you turn to John 13, you can turn there or you can set your phones to John 13 because we all have those now, right? I'm going to take you through just part of John 13 just to let you know how Jesus radically departs from what these guys expect, okay? John's timing is a little different. Don't be thrown. Three of your Gospels use the same sort of timing and a lot of the same elements. They're called the synoptic Gospels. It comes from the Greek to mean to see the same. Optic nerve, optometrist, synoptic, the same view. John is the guy who's the odd man out. He writes later and his Gospel is not one of the synoptics. In other words, he's doing something a little different. When you get to 13, now before the Feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come, he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, arose from the supper. So, so far, things are looking pretty normal. He gets up, they're expecting that. He took a towel, he laid aside his garments, real good so far, he's going to wash his hands, right? He girded himself, everything's looking good, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet. And these guys are now horrified. Because in the ancient world, the lesser blessed the greater, not the other way around. And you do not go and do that before you're going to touch the elements you're going to touch. So now things are a little different. When you read the account, you like to follow Peter because Peter says what everyone else is thinking, but no one else has the guts to, and he's also just all in. And so when he gets to Peter, Peter says, I love it. Some translations say, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Probably the most ridiculous sentence ever written because if he's your Lord, you don't say no, and if you're saying no, he's not your Lord at that moment. And so Peter ends up saying no, and Jesus says, no, it's like this, Peter. If I don't wash your feet, you have no fellowship with me. That word part in Greek is koinonia. It's the word we get fellowship from. So Jesus essentially says, I'm doing this, Peter. If you want to be with me, I get to do this. And then Peter goes and says, well, no. Well, if that's the case, I don't want you to wash my feet. Why don't you just give me an entire bath? 
good old Peter. And God ends up saying, uh, Jesus ends up saying, no, if a man is bathed, he needs only to have his feet washed. All of you are clean except one, for he knew who would betray him. Again, physical purity is being used as an illustration of spiritual purity. And so Jesus ended up washing the disciples' feet, a departure. Jesus probably didn't have anything as fancy as this, so we have some, well, it's not quite homespun, wrapped around some matzah. Uh, I do this just because um, the compartments are real clear and I can lift it up. I thought about lifting the other and went, I don't want to be picking up matzah crumbs and neither does your pastor. So we're going to save that effort. This is called a matzah tosh. Again, Jesus probably wrapped homespun. He could have gotten a hold of a piece of cloth that wasn't being used. Around three matzahs at the table. Now, this gets to be fun. I already know there's one person who read ahead, but that's okay. Understand, unsaved Jewish people are not Trinitarian. The Trinity was one of the major things I had to deal with before I came to faith. That is a big deal for Jewish people. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's recited three times a day, and in my testimony, I considered it an oath of fealty to the one king. So that really ended up affecting me. So this is the three that is one, right? One bag, three compartments. Three matzahs, one unit, the three that is one. I'm going to pull out the second of the three that is one. Now, if you've never seen matzah, you need to see matzah. Okay? Now, what's the difference between matzah and saltine crackers? This will not rise. You can keep this in the cabinet and use it for next Passover. This is dead bread. It's going to do nothing. Okay? It is treated in a way to keep it from rising. This, this virtually is kind of an interesting substance. It's heated within 18 minutes of the water touching the flour. No natural fermentation can occur. It is mechanically pierced so that no CO2 can set up in this. So it is kept as unleavened as bread can possibly be kept. So let's see, by doing that, what ends up happening? It's bruised because of the heat, and it's pierced. So let's see, the second of the three that is one is bruised and pierced. Oh, I've seen lights go on. Now I'm going to break it. By the way, leaven often represents sin. So it's the unleavened one. That's the second of the three that is one, which is bruised and pierced and broken and buried. Jesus probably didn't make a big deal of burying it. He didn't have to. He had his men's attention. He probably just simply put it aside, out of sight, out of mind, if he put it behind a few other elements and went on. So he's gone ahead and done that. The second cup has been refilled, and I need to talk to you a little bit about that second cup. It's the cup of thanksgiving. The promise is, I will deliver you from bondage. Sometimes it's called the cup of judgment. There are two traditions. I like Eric Lipson out of England, and he traces it back to the tradition that's the cup of thanksgiving. We're not going to touch that yet, but I want to make you aware of it so that you're keeping with the cup countdown. Okay, we've moved beyond the first. We don't waste anything. What do we do with the other half of the matzah? 
An invitation is given. This is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are in need come and celebrate the Passover. Now you think, what does that have to do with you? Ha, evangelism 101. What are you inviting people to? You're inviting people to God's ultimate Passover, right? John, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Don't be afraid to evangelize. You all have a gospel track. It's called your testimony. It's unique and it's been written by God and it'll touch people that no one else's testimony will touch the same way. So you are pre-equipped to evangelize with your own story from the moment you come to faith. Beyond that, you're only inviting people to probably the greatest thing in the world, the Lord's Passover, the ultimate celebration of celebrations. I'm going to slip this back in the second compartment. We're going to tell the story very briefly of the Passover, but we don't tell the story without asking some questions. I always joke. Um, if you look at Jewish people, um, they ask more questions than they give answers. Jesus is always answering people in questions. Peter, who do, who do people say that I am? That's a very Jewish way to end up communicating. Um, I learned to ask God good questions. I'm going to encourage you to do that as you read your Bible. Ask God questions as you look at the text. He'll get you the answers. You only need to ask the questions. How do Jewish people do it? Well, the youngest child gets to ask the four questions. Why the youngest child? Because it's assumed that the youngest child wouldn't know the answers. Now, the cool thing is, when we go through the questions, the answers are never directly given because what we're trying to do is force the youngest child to listen to the whole story. So they're listening for the answers, but they never directly get them. And see, by the time it's over, you got what you wanted. And until the youngest child gets old enough to figure it out, <laughs> you got quite a thing going here. I want you to hear one of them in Hebrew, and then I'll do the English for it, and then I'll do the English for the other ones. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat either leavened bread or unleavened bread, but on this night, we eat only unleavened bread. By the way, from the point of the first Seder through the Passover period, which in the diaspora is eight days, no leavened products are eaten. Everything my kids eat crunches. And so they are so anxious for a juicy piece of cake. By the time it's over, we have learned to use matzah in ways you cannot believe. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs, but on this night, we eat only bitter. We're going to talk about that particular player in the Seder plate, but the herbs eaten at this meal are different. Why is this night different on all, than all other nights? On all other nights, we don't even dip once, but on this night, we dip twice. You've seen the first dipping. It was the parsley and the salt water. There'll be another dipping that comes up that's traditional, but it's different. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat sitting or reclining. On this night, we eat reclining. Now, you guys aren't doing that right now, um, but you are allowed to slouch. Let me explain why. In the ancient world, slaves did not get to recline. 
They had to either stand and attend their masters, and if they were allowed to relax at all, they were to sit at attention. They had no right to recline. A free man can recline in the ancient world. And so Jewish people do that to indicate that the exodus really occurred and they're not still in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh. So they recognize that change in status by reclining. This tells us that the da Vinci picture was wrong. I always tell people, you don't take marble tables and put them in the upper room because maybe your upper room might become your lower room. Okay? But we also know they would not have sat like that because John leaned against Jesus' chest. Hard to do on a straight back chair without falling over. So they would have sat on the floor with pillows, probably with their feet behind them on a smaller table. Uh, Jewish people today do use regular size tables. We just slouch to make up the difference. Now for the story. Now I'm going to reduce it. This is the longest part of the Seder. If you're a kid, you've eaten nothing but a little parsley and some salt water, and then your grandfather goes into uh, the Megid, the retelling of the story, for two hours. And when dinner comes, you are ready. And you sit, and you listen, and you behave. Because this is a special time, and you are remembering the history of your people, and God's working among them. So you learn. I'm going to reduce it for you just a little bit. I'm not going to do the story, the rabbi's comments, and the rabbi's comments on the rabbi's comments. You don't need that this morning. But I am going to point a few things. First of all, you need to know that the scriptures tell us that when Israel went down to Egypt, you have two accounts. One says 70 people. Stephen mentions more than 70 people. This is not a contradiction in the Bible. Who was already in Egypt when Jacob and sons arrived? Joseph and his family. Stephen includes the whole group. The account in the Bible earlier is talking about the migration of, focused on the migration of Jacob and how Israel ended up in Egypt. And so it doesn't take into account Joseph and his sons already being there. So the counting's a little different. They were not a nation. They were a people. Let me define a people or ethnic group to you. An ethnic group is a group of individuals with a similar lineage, language, and history. Okay? That's an ethnic group. Uh, India is a nation that has over 200 different ethnic groups or peoples. Okay? How did they get to be a nation? Well, after they leave Egypt, they get to Sinai. What changes them from a group of brothers that hate each other? These guys did not get along. Check with Joseph and how his brothers felt about him. This was not a simple, harmonious little family. They had their differences. The crucible of affliction helped mold Israel. Don't be surprised if some things don't mold you that you might not find quite so pleasant. I'm going to give you a rabbinical insight that I like. I like to say the rabbis are like a broken clock. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. So every so often they come up with something that's really worthwhile. Jewish people call the glorious dwelling presence of God the Shekinah or Shekinah. It's very important. Understand it's a great proof for the Trinity and it also is a wonderful proof for the Incarnation because I can say to an Orthodox Jewish person, why do you have problems? Which is easier, for God to become a burning bush or for God to end up dwelling as a man? Answer me that question. 
And it's a great question to be able to ask. Or I can say to them, look, I believe Jesus is the walking Shekinah glory of God come in the flesh. Sounds a lot like John 1, right? We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. The rabbis believe that when God appeared in the burning bush, it was a thorn bush. And so they say in their commentary on Exodus that God's soul was pierced like a thorn, that God literally wore a crown of thorns when he appeared in the burning bush. As you think about this, all of you who have not read Hebrews chapter 1, you can add that to your reading assignments. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his person or being, having made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The radiance of his glory is a reference. Remember, Hebrews is written to a Jewish believing audience, to the Shekinah glory. See, I don't know if the Shekinah wore a crown of thorns at the Exodus before. I know he wore a crown of thorns later on in the person of Jesus. Kind of a cool little insight. Now for the plagues. Does God love the nations of the world? I looked at your missions board. I think you'd say yes, right? I like to point out something. God always calls judgment his strange work. doesn't mean it's not his work, but we have a God who is merciful and gracious in his very nature. Uh, why do I do that? I get to talk on Islam occasionally. Our God is a God of mercy. Don't try that with Allah. Okay, Ex, uh, Isaiah twenty-eight twenty-one says that God does his judging, his strange work, if you need a verse. And for those who are missionaries to Egypt, Isaiah 19, verse 21 and 23 says there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Egypt's, Egyptians will come and worship the one true God. So there's some neat mission stuff in the Old Testament if you know where to find it. Now we have to deal with the plagues. Remember I said this was the cup of Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is diminished because the Egyptians had to suffer. Now I do need to let you know each of these plagues is directed at a god of Egypt. So let's go through them and we'll talk about them. Dom is blood. Second plague is fly, uh, frogs. Gnats, third plague. Avro, flies. Dever Shechin. Pestilence, Belad, hail, Arba, locusts, Koshech, darkness, and then the slaying of the firstborn. Now, let me tell you how those work, okay? They worship the Nile, God made it bleed. I'm God, the Nile isn't. They worship frogs, God gave them frogs. Be careful what you worship, God might give it to you. They worshiped the fly god. I don't know why they worshiped the fly. Okay, but they did. They worshiped some sort of cattle god, and God dealt with that. They worshiped the sun, and God put it out. Darkness. They worshiped Pharaoh, and God took his firstborn son. So effective was God's method that a number of Egyptians left with the Jews. It says a mixed multitude left in God's judgment is his reaching out in mercy. Your gods aren't God, I am. Get the message? So he not only frees the children of Israel, but he actually ends up teaching the Egyptians a lesson about who's God in the process. 
Once the second cup has been used for the plagues, it's normally drank. So how many cups do we have left? Two. We're moving along, aren't we? Now we need to talk about a few other things. There would be a second washing of hands because I'm going to touch a major player. Gospels don't record that. There's no need to. What Jesus did and what he taught is the focus of the Gospels. And what wasn't different and what didn't contribute, the Gospel writers were not moved by the Holy Spirit to tell us. That's okay. Gives the job for, to people like me. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the bitter herb. This is Maror. I'm going to get a little help here because I want it on the spoon. You can use endive, you can use chicory, but an Eastern European Jew says, why bother? We use horseradish. I jokingly say that not only does it help celebrate the Passover, but it cures any spring cold you have. So it's very useful that way. It represents the bitterness of slavery. I'd like to take a second here because we're all sitting here as Americans and we don't really know what slavery feels like, do we? Not external slavery. That's okay. You can still be a slave in America. You want to know how? Jesus said whoever sins is a slave to it. There's a type of slavery that every man can end up experiencing. That's bondage to sin. And it's a really sad thing, isn't it? Now, most times when we're doing this as a dinner, people look at us scared because they think they're going to be eating a spoonful of horseradish. But wait, there's more. There's something called the chorosid. I'm going to try to get this to stand up. Figs and dates are used by Sephardic Jews because they can get them, and that's what they do. Eastern European Jews cannot find figs in Siberia at the time they moved there, so they used apples. Apples, walnuts, cold, cold climate sorts of things. Grape juice, which they could get a hold of. And then cinnamon, the spice route did exist, and some sweetener. So this is called chorosa. It represents the mortar that was used in Egypt. It's the tastiest mortar you're ever going to have. I tell churches they have the extra. Take pancake batter, take chorosa, mix it together. You got the best apple walnut pancakes you've ever tasted. Now, why do I do this? Well, I'm introducing you to the Seder. What does that have to do with your faith? How many of you have gone to the store and bought a quart of sop lately? Ah, I see you haven't done that. But the Gospels say that when Jesus had dipped into the sop, what's the sop? Why is there sop at the Seder? Two great rabbinical schools had terrible arguments before Jesus. They were Hillel and Shammai. That's why Jesus gets some asked some questions. He gets asked questions because they want to know, are you on Hillel's side? Are you a disciple of Hillel or Shammai? By the way, Jesus says, neither. They're both wrong. That's his solution to the problem. He may lean towards one school a little more because one school might have been a little better, but he refuses to be boxed in. And so he gives them some answers they aren't even expecting. They argued about everything. They argued about which three elements must be taken together for it to be a legitimate Passover. It was a big argument. Hillel won. And I like to jokingly say, if you win the argument, you get the sandwich named after you. So we get to the Hillel sandwich, or the correct. That's the sop. The elements that Hillel said had to be taken together for a Seder with unleavened bread become the sop that's part of the Seder. So it becomes part of the tradition. 
I do want to let you know a few things, just in case you thought Iscariot was Judas' last name. It was not. It comes from two Hebrew words. Ish means man. Karoth was a suburb of Jerusalem. Judas was the only disciple not from the Galilee area. Jesus goes to hand the sop to him. This is the second dipping because in the ancient world, you took the matzah and you dipped it in the sop and you tried to get it to your mouth before it spilled all over you, okay? And so that's what the sop is. Judas hands the sop after he said, one will betray me. That was actually a very generous, loving act on Jesus' part. A rabbi handing someone the sop was actually a kindness. Judas ends up not ending up sticking for the meal. Jesus says, what you're going to do Go do. Uh, Judas didn't do anything he wasn't planning to do. Satan just helped. That's the Satan entering into him, energized him for the awful task that he was going to do. Lest we let Judas off the hook a little too much, there are some decisions on Judas's part too. And so he leaves before the meal. Understand the ancient world. When a covenant was made in the ancient world, a meal was always included between the covenant parties. By leaving the meal, Judas is rejecting the means of God's grace. So now you understand why his leaving the meal was so significant. He did not enter into covenant, which was an important concept back then. Normally, I'd take two pieces of matzah. I'd take a little horseradish, and I'd take haroset. The braver you are, the less haroset you take and the more horseradish you take. And I'd make the halal sandwich and I'd eat it. That's the only thing other than the parsley and salt water that's been eaten until the meal. Now would come normally the meal. We're not going to do that. You're all going to go out to lunch somewhere. I don't know. This is the time when I usually do two things. One, you all received brochures, right? During this time of year, we have chosen people, missionaries, going out all over the place. How do they know I made it? Because you're going to turn this in. This is your attendance slip. This tells me you came. I'm excited because every time the office gets a lot of attendance slips, they go, oh, that's cool. And they get excited. And so this morning, you're going to help me excite the office back in New York City and show them that this place in Colorado really does exist. You're going to fill these out. After 125 years, our mission board has discovered perforation. Okay? You get to keep the testimony and my lovely family. Well, you don't get to keep my lovely family, just a picture. And you get to keep the information, and you're going to turn these in. Don't take them home. Please put them back in my hand. I save you the postage, and it's part of our paperwork. So if you do that right now, and I'll turn it in with the secret code and fill those out. One per family is quite fine. And I listen for the sound of that ripping perforation because that's a good sign. There you go. Ah, symphony to my ears. Uh, while you're doing that, uh, there's a table out there. The stuff that is ours, we give away freely, which is my testimony. Everything else has kind of been taken. Um, the stuff that doesn't belong to me, that's called theft if I give it to you. We don't do that in church. 
So that will be handled, but that's chosen people stuff that we just make available. Okay, I'm trusting you're filling those out. Uh, I didn't ask Pastor how long-winded I was supposed to be because I could allow for some Q&A, but if I'm too long-winded, then I don't want any... 10, 15 minutes. We'll move on and we'll just save the Q&A while I'm roaming around, okay? Because I don't want to miss things that need to be done here. Remember we talked about the bread and cup? Well, it's time to talk about those now because this is the place where Jesus takes the elements and ends up using them, okay? This is the cup of redemption. The promise is I will redeem you. I want to make very clear that the disciples did not get it. You have the advantage of understanding first and second coming. Try to find the worst first and second coming in the front part of your Bible. You won't see them. Here's what the prophets did. They ended up going to the next important event, almost like newspaper headlines. There's a big, long theological word. Prophecy is epotelismatic. It looks to the next event. Okay, they're not getting it. They're expecting Messiah to come and to reign and to kick out Rome and to reunite heaven and earth and bring the rule of God to earth and get rid of paganism. That's essentially what they're expecting. The worship of the one true God over the whole earth, the kingdom. And so they're not getting this stuff about Jesus. What good is a dead king? And so they're not getting it. Jesus only has a few little bit of time before he gets arrested, right? He wants to communicate with these guys. So he takes the cup of redemption with the promise, I will redeem you. The minute he takes this cup, in their head is echoing the promise, I will redeem you. They associate that cup with that promise. And Jesus says, this is the blood of the new, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he's connecting this to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. The biggest, one of the objections you will hear from Orthodox Jews is there is no new covenant. I had a Russian Jewish lady do that to me. And I said, yes, there is. I said, have you not read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33? Behold, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Judah, sorry, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. So this is a cool thing. Jesus is inaugurating. We haven't realized it yet. I still have to vote. I still have to pay taxes, right? But he's inaugurating this new covenant. He's doing this. I will redeem you. This is the blood of the new covenant. And he's connecting the new covenant to his passion, to redemption. In one felled swoop, he's connecting Exodus 12 to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, to Isaiah 53, to the events of that evening in the head of those disciples. This is the cup of the bread and cup. So the cup that you use for communion is the cup of redemption. Think about that promise the next time you take communion. I will redeem you because that's what it's all about, right? Normally, the kids go hunting for the matzah that was buried, which I ended up taking and bearing really well. There we go. Okay? And it's hidden. It's called the afikomen. means dessert, but the Greek word can also come from the idea, I will come. That's courtesy of one of my Greek professors, Dr. Greg Haig, afikomai. 
Rafikome. Kids bring it back and they usually get a silver coin. Silver represents redemption. So let's review. The second of the three that was one, the three that is one, was, which is bruised and pierced and unleavened, is broken, buried, and let's see, resurrected. This is my body. See the symbolism there? This is so cool because Jewish people do this in their homes across the entire world every year for two nights. I did this and I never connected it. See, the scriptures say that there's a veil over their eyes which is lifted in Christ. Jewish people have all this great spiritual pictures, all these redemptive analogies as Don Richardson puts it. But until they can connect it to Messiah, they cannot understand the whole story. So why don't Jewish people believe? Because there's a key that unlocks the puzzle that they have not yet accepted that will make all of their customs make new sense and new meaning. And so what I did as a child took on whole new meaning for me and connected in a way it never could have without Messiah. And that's the bread and cup. I'm going to finish by talking about two other cups. Jewish people don't know a first and second coming, so they were expecting who? Elijah. Remember John the Baptist? Are you the prophet? Okay? Because Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, one talks about the forerunner, the other says, Behold, I send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So usually the doors are open. There's a beautiful little song sung, and Elijah is invited. This cup is filled. And no one told me about evaporation of wine when I was a kid. So I used to try and see if the level went down. But Elijah never came. Then there's the fourth cup. This is called the cup of completion. The promise is, I will take you to me for a people. This is the last cup of the Seder. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the word take. See, you are going to learn some Hebrew today. Lakach. It's a guttural. Most of you will go, and you'll have trouble with it, but that's okay. It can have covenantal meaning. When it says that Isaac took Rebekah, okay, that's covenantal. He took her in marriage. You're going to see that sort of language. Um, I will take you to me for a people is covenant language. Here's what I want to give you to, to leave with. We've talked about redemption. Let's just touch on sanctification for just a split second here. Okay? Sin is spiritual adultery. That's what God calls it in the Old Testament. When Israel sins, he calls her adulteress. God covenantally has taken all believers in Messiah to be his. Sinning is stepping out on God. Try to do a little less of it this year. Because sanctification is an important part of the picture, isn't it? It is not completed yet, but we will see him and we will be transformed and it will be completed, right? Jewish satyrs end with next year in Jerusalem. The cool thing is we can look beyond the kingdom to a new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So next year in Jerusalem, maybe, but someday the new Jerusalem, certainly. Amen? Well, that's that.